while they're taking the offering, let's turn to Hosea, as I want to start there, and then put a marker in Ezekiel chapter 8, because I want to look, I want you to read the verses with me, especially in Ezekiel, and there are some verses in Chronicles I want to look at. One of the things that you see that is very, very prominent in the Old Testament is idolatry. And we want to look at that, and I want to show you some things related to that, because where you see idolatry in the Old Testament, what is the source of that idolatry? Well, there's various sources, but in particular, what I mean is the people of God were the ones in which that became an extension of them. It became a part of them where they started to do these different things. And the Lord raises up prophet after prophet after prophet to different generations. And some, uh, for example, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, their ministries overlapped. And one of the main things that they dealt with was idolatry, and I want to show you something in Ezekiel, what was the result, the final result of idolatry. In Hosea's time, it was the time of Israel. There was a split in the kingdom after Solomon died, his son taxing, he overtaxed the people, and there was a big split. You had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin, two tribes. And so Hosea is raised as a prophet to go to this northern kingdom of Israel. They had several prophets that, that, that dealt with them. But one of the things I want to show you here, Hosea 1, verse 2. This is something that was very, very, very unusual. There's nowhere else I see it in the Bible where this has happened. And you have to just think about this for a minute. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, now he's a prophet, he's a man of God, he's serving the Lord, he's walking with the Lord. The Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife of harlotry, or go take a wife who's a prostitute, and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So the Lord is going to Use this prophet. Now, it's amazing that he was able to even to receive these words because everything within him would never allow him to go and marry a harlot. Everything that he knew from the law would have prohibited him from doing that. But yet, his relationship was beyond that. He had a relationship with the Lord himself, and he heard the voice of the Lord to take this harlot. And what the Lord is going to do in this is he is going to graphically illustrate what has taken place with the people of Israel. Okay, Hosea, you go and you take this woman who's a harlot, and you marry her, and then... After that, what happens is she has three children. Now remember that the country is in idolatry. And the Lord tells Hosea, you name these three children, and in each one of their names is going to be related to my judgment upon the people because they have a heart for other gods. The one was called in verse 4, Jezreel, which means scatters, God disperses, and God was going to judge them. The Assyrians were going to come in to Samaria, besiege it, and they were going to take the people and scatter them across the land. They'll never, they'll never be able to be a nation, the, the northern nation again. So he says, you tell them that. The second child in verse 6 is called Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy, or no pity. So there's going to be a total destruction of the people 
because of this idolatry that they were so intertwined with. And this has been going on generation after generation here, you see. Not just a few years. And then the third child, he tells Hosea, name in verse 9, lo Amy, and that means they are not my people. They are no longer my people. So idolatry here is getting into the hearts of the people, and it's in every root of their fiber of their being, so to speak, so that everything that they do is going forth instead of to the God of Israel. It's going forth to other gods. And so after a period of time, the Lord says, I am going to judge this. I'm going to do something. You were my people, but now you will no longer be my people. Wow. Now that's pretty strong. Now if you continue on in the book of Hosea, there's a, a bright spot. The Lord said, says he's going to restore them. So he's, he's called here. So he, he takes this woman. She has three children. He's in marriage with her. And because of her heart, she desires to go back to one of her old lovers and becomes a slave to her old lover. Wow. And Hosea's love never deviates. He continues to love her. And this is a picture of the Lord. He continues to love her, and he goes and he finds her, and he buys her back off of the slave market and says, you will no longer play the harlot. You are going to come back, and you are going to be my wife. And the Lord is, is using this to illustrate the judgment that's going to come upon Israel and upon Judah, and it's not going to be good. Now let's go to Ezekiel and put a marker here because we're going to stay here for a while. Ezekiel chapter 8. Now how many of you have studied the book of Ezekiel? Some of you had it in Bible school. In chapter 1, Ezekiel is given this vision by God. And, and this vision is of the four living creatures and the different things related to them. That was the first vision that he had. The second one, this comes in, in chapter 8, and this is about a year after God has, has called him. He appears to, to uh, Ezekiel the second time, and he's going to give them this vision. This vision is going to illustrate something. Still the problem with the people was idolatry. Idolatry. And I have the meaning of that, and we're going to get to that in a little bit, because it may surprise you what idolatry is. But so the people are so into this that the Lord, he just cannot get them out. He sends prophet after prophet the word of God comes to them time and time again. If you read the book of Ezekiel, the first seven chapters, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to do that. He says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians in, and they're going to wipe you out in the siege. And he warns them. And yet, because their hearts are so tied into idolatry that they cannot or they will not allow the Lord to break that, to cut that, to change that. And that remains something that is, is there. It's in their heart. And the Lord just, just tries to get to that thing, tries to get to it, and tries to get to it. So in chapter 8, you have the second vision. Now he's going to be transported in, in spirit. He's going to, in verse 1, we'll read this in a minute. He sits, he's sitting with the elders of Israel. And the Lord, in the middle of that, is going to transport him in a vision to the temple. So verse 1. 
And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Now what he's going to see is the wickedness. He's going to see the abominations of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people think that what they're doing is hidden. See, people think that they can hide their sin. But see, God sees in the dark place. God sees in the home. God sees in your room. God sees where we are. And there is no hiding from God. We can deceive ourselves into ignoring that. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that God is not watching us. We don't have a revelation that the Spirit of God is watching us at all times. If we had that revelation, we would walk differently, not here in church, but at home and at work. We would have a different heart and a different spirit because we would be aware that the Spirit of God sees us and He's watching us. And so in, in verse 3, the word abomination, it comes from this, there are different words in the Hebrew that translate this word, but it means impure, unclean, um, filthy. In verse 3, he stretched out the form of a hand. This is in this vision. He's, he's before the elders and he sees this vision of God. He sees this hand. And he took me by the locks of my hair. And the spirit lifted me up between the, the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. So the Lord is saying there is something there, and he calls it the image of jealousy. He says that what I'm seeing provokes to jealousy, and I'm going to show you, Ezekiel, my prophet, what it is, and I'm going to open up the door to you, so that you can look into that and you can see what makes me jealous. Now hold your place there and go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. See, the, the corruption in the hearts of the people, the Lord says, they have done that themselves. If there is corruption in the heart of his people, many times that is because of their own will, their own desire, the way they want to go, and they corrupt themselves. And the saying is, we become our own worst enemies. And that's true. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blasphemy, a perverse and crooked generation. They're going their own way. In contrast to that, verse 3 says, For I will proclaim, this is Moses, I believe. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. We as believers, as Christians, should be proclaiming the name of the Lord. How do I proclaim the name of the Lord? By saying in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord? No. I proclaim his name by the manner in which I live. The manner in which I walk. Am I moving toward him as the focal point of my life? Or is my heart moving toward something that can be considered an idol? Now, He's going to show Ezekiel this image of jealousy. Now, jealousy, I'm going to write this down for you. 
maybe I'll, I'll do it this way. I'll write it in a way that it applies to us rather than to, because I was relating this to Israel. What is jealousy? Well, we know what jealousy is. We, we know when, you know when someone's jealous, there's a specific manifestation that comes out. But with God, see, there is something here that is very touching. Jealousy is God's sensitivity to the hearts, I'll do it this way, to the hearts of his people, and, I'll, and we're dealing with Israel and Judah, in their desire for other gods. Or you can say other things. So we serve a Lord, a God, who is sensitive. Did you ever think of God being sensitive? See, he becomes sensitive because his people are not serving him. They're not having him before them. Their eye and their heart, the center of, of their being, the core of, of their you know, makeup is not moving toward him. It's rather moving toward something else, toward idols. That was the big thing back then. And so the Lord raises up this man, Ezekiel. And I want to read two verses. This is from Kings. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. So there was progressively with them, they got worse and worse and worse. The Lord sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and they became worse and worse and worse. We can hear the word of God and hear the word of God and hear the word of God, and it can produce nothing of anything better in our life. Rather, it can be the same, you know, like, like they did. There was never any change. They never got better. They got, they got worse, or we can remain the same. So the word of God can come and come and come and never do what it's intended to do in your life and in my life personally. And so here they, they provoked the Lord to jealousy. He was very sensitive, the sensitivity of his heart toward what they were doing. In Exodus it says, you shall not bow down nor serve them, meaning you know, the idols, the gods of the land. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then he says this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So not just you do it and your, your children suffer. No, he will visit generation after generation, and that's what happened here in the Old Testament. You can graphically see that with the minor prophets. One generation did not serve him. They served other gods. And then the next generation came. They served other gods. And the next generation came, and they served other gods. And so he says, I will visit, I'm a jealous God, and I will visit the iniquity of your children from generation to generation, those who hate me, those who don't want to serve me, those who want to serve other gods, those of my people that rather than walk with me are going to walk with this God, other God, whatever it may be. I'm going to give you the definition from the dictionary of an idol, and it's this. The worship of an image or other material ob object representing a deity. That was one definition from the dictionary. This is the second definition from the di dictionary. Any person or thing uh, regarded with blind ador adoration, admiration, or devotion. Any person regarded with admiration adoration or devotion do people give adoration to other people it's quite clear 
that that happens. There can be, and we hear this, rock idol. Do you think that word is put there just for no reason? They may say, well, I'm, that's, I'm not worshiping them. But see, it's something that's placed before the Lord. Rock idol, rock star. American idol is becoming a, a byword now with people. American idol. Someone that is put up in admiration. And whether a person believes it or not, that thing is placed in their heart, can be, in a place higher than the Lord. Now, the, the Bible definition for the word, this is from a Bible dictionary. Something we ourselves make into a God. We can make things into a God. How can we do that? Anything or anyone who is placed in a position in my heart before the Lord becomes an idol. Anyone or anything. So if I have a hobby, I can take that hobby and I can put that thing right up in a position that now that becomes more important to me than the Lord. And I remember when I had season tickets for the Steelers. And the first Super Bowl, I saw every playoff game, all of them, down three rivers. And then the second one was a few years later, I had just become a Christian. And it was nothing for me before to spend my Sundays down there. I started to go the second time, and I'm there, you know, down there sitting in the cold seat, and the Lord was already, I was only a Christian a year, and the Lord was starting to deal with my heart, showing me that this was placed, being placed before the Lord in my life because I am here rather than being in church. And the Lord took care of that real quick for me. Real quick. It was gone. Done. No tickets anymore. Gone. That became an idol in my life, and I didn't even know it. Now, remember this. If you read the book of Kings, you read the book of Chronicles, you will see this in various places where one king comes on the scene, maybe like Asa. And he comes on the scene, or Josiah, Josiah, I know that for sure. He came on the scene, and he started to uh, take the idolatry out of the country. He would go to the places, and he would give orders to, to destroy those idols and that, that altar and so forth. And then they had idols in the high places. And sometimes the kings were able to, because, maybe because of pressure or whatever, they couldn't do it. But in some instances, they were even able to take the idols and destroy the temples in the high places. See, we can have an idol in our heart, and the Lord can begin to break that down, but yet not have complete success because he can't get to the high places. The high places of our heart will take quite a work, will take the Spirit of God, will take the Lord to work in certain ways and in certain circumstances to completely break that thing so it's no longer in that position in the heart that is before the Lord. And see, we think, we think that nothing is there. Most Christians will say, well, I have no idols in my life. There is nothing there. But the Spirit of God, He sees and he knows, and he will work to take that which we may think is all right. No, it may be. But sometimes we think it's all right, and the Lord gets in there, and he starts to work. So it took the Lord quite a while in that thing to get to the destruction of the high places in my heart. I mean, I, today, I could care less about any sport, I could care less if they, if they all folded up, they all ran out of money, and they never had another sport on TV, I could care less. I, I don't care. It doesn't have any place in my heart. So if you're not there, 
and you enjoy a football game or a hockey game or whatever, maybe that's fine. But I'm talking about myself. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. God has done something in my life, and that has no place there. I mean, I can watch a football game, but it doesn't, maybe you don't understand this, but it doesn't touch in me what it once touched because God has broken down the high places. So in, back in Ezekiel chapter 8, so the Lord is going to show Ezekiel what's going on here. See, we, we don't know what's going on sometimes. You know that, don't you? We don't know. Sometimes we think we see. Sometimes we think we know. And the Lord knows the truth. He knows what's going on. And he has to come and catch us away, so to speak, to bring us to a place where we can see in spirit and in truth and see as he sees so that the work he wants to do in our life and in our heart can be done. It takes the spirit of God. That's why I covet the moving of the spirit. I covet having the spirit of God move because I know he can do things in my life. He can do things in your life that could not be done any other time or any other way. Chapter 8, verse 6. So verse 3, he's, he's uh, taken by the Spirit uh, and brought to Jerusalem in visions of God. In verse 6, Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commit here to make me far away, uh, to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall, and when I dug into the wall, there was a door. So here's the vision he has. He's, he's there at the temple, and he's at the wall. And, he, and the Lord says, dig at the wall. So he digs, and he starts to dig. He sees something, and he digs and digs, and there's a door. Well, what is the door doing there in this vision? The door is the revelation of God for him to see what is going on in the dark, to see what is going on in the place uh, where things are hidden. And so the Lord is going to show the prophet so he says, dig. He comes to the door. And he said, son of man, dig into the wall. Verse 8. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are doing. So I went in and saw in there every sort. This is in the temple of God. I saw every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all round on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. In, in, in their midst stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, and he was the leader of the elders. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, you have seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his, his idols. For they say the Lord does not see, the Lord has forsaken the land. So they're in there, in this dark area, in this cloud of incense, and they think they're hidden from God. The Lord does not see what's going on in the dark. He doesn't see. He doesn't have eyes. And so they're worshiping these idols. They're, they're doing the very, very thing it says in, in the Old Testament, in the law, not to do. They have these creeping things in, that they had there, these idols, that were against the Levitical law. And so the elders, this is not the people, this is the leaders. The elders and the leader of the elders that's in there doing that. And the thing I find interesting is even though they were in unbelief as far as God and the, the word of God, 
they're still practicing religion. And see, that is norm. That's the norm. A person can be in unbelief and still practice religion. Oh, let's go in with our censors. Well, where did they get the censors? Well, that was part of the, the priestly thing. They went into the, the inner courts. What do they do in there? Well, that's the, the religious thing, so to speak. That's what they were supposed to do. But see, they practice their own religion here in unbelief. In unbelief. Verse 12. For they say, the Lord does not see, see us, and the Lord has forsaken the land. That's probably the reason why they turn to idols. Because they believe the Lord is forsaking them. And Ezekiel here is prophesying <clears throat> that the Babylonians are going to come in and besiege Jerusalem and take them captive for 70 years. And so they're, they're saying, well, let's just turn to idols. Well, that was the problem to begin with. They turned to idols. Their heart was not toward the Lord. Verse 15. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you. Uh, you, will, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their, fa their faces toward the east, what were they doing? Th this is really something. Th this goes to, to show you that God's people can turn and have a hardened heart toward Him. They turn their back toward the altar, toward the Lord, and they're looking to the east. What happens in the east every morning? The sun rises. So they're, they're facing the east, and they're involved in this worship of the sun, this deity of the, the Canaanites. Verse 16. And their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Wow. Now hold your place just for a minute. Let's go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 12. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have gone according to the custom of the Gentiles, which are all around you. So Israel was raised up by God to be a light and to be a witness to the Gentile nations. And instead, they turned and became just like the Gentile nations. That's one of the reasons why the Lord did not want the people to have a king and he told Samuel that he, would, <clears throat> he was to go to the people and tell them, you know, you don't want a king, but this, this is the manner of the king. What's going to happen if, you know, to your children and to your family with the king? And so instead of the people you know, wanting to go the Lord's way and wait for the Lord to send another judge or wait for him to send a seer, instead they wanted a king because they wanted to be just like the other nations. Their heart wanted to be like the world. They wanted to do what the world does. They wanted to go where the world goes. They wanted to have what the world has. And they wanted their hearts to be like the world. So he says here, they have done according to the customs of the Gentiles that are around you. They're, they're just like them. They're doing everything like them. I set up this for them. They're over here doing just like the world. The Christians, just like the world sometimes. Sometimes you can't even tell them apart. Have you run into Christians like that? They're to be a witness. They're to be the light in the workplace. And instead, they're one of the, the, the ones that have the filthiest mouth. 
They're the ones that do everything and act just like the other people there. So, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun that happens today. And the Lord's not pleased with it. In chapter 9, Ezekiel, just one verse, Ezekiel here, the Lord has him identify the righteous, and he's going to show him to mark the righteous and to slaughter those that aren't. Now, that's pretty strong, uh, but you know, that God does what he wants because he's God. You know that, right? You know God's God? You know you're not going to convince him otherwise? If the Lord's going to do a certain thing and we all fuss about it, that doesn't bother him. He's still on the throne. He's going to do what he's going to do because he's God. And no matter what man does in the world, no matter what world system comes, God is still God, and he's going to have a people, and he's going to go along a certain way, and, and you're not going to change his mind. In verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within. Uh, that word sigh, if I can remember it correctly, is meaning like the mourning or the sighing that someone would have at a funeral of a loved one. So he says, those that we see here that are sighing and they are mourning for the abominations in the land. They're mourning because of the idolatry and all the sin and the filth and all the uncleanness. He says, those who are sighing, those you mark, those are the ones you mark, because their hearts are moving a different way. Now, I want to show you something. All this groundwork here for idolatry had a result. See, we think sometimes that you know, we can do what we want as Christians, and there are no results. There are always results. We make decisions, you know there's results. You made a decision to get out of bed and come to church today. The result was you got to church you know, on, on a simple plane. You, know, you, you make a decision, and you don't see right away what that's going to bring, but there will be a result. This idolatry, remember something. Idolatry resides where? Here, in the heart. It becomes manifest out. I went to these games and that was my idol. Someone wants to go somewhere else, and you know, whatever it may be, that's, that's something that's put up there that becomes an idol. But remember, if the Lord deals with that, and we surrender to him, then the result of that is going to be something godly. It's going to be something good. It's going to be something uh, of, of the Lord that he's done, a work in, in the heart. But if the individual, like they did here in Israel, if they decide that I am going to be stiff-necked and I am going to remain in this and I am going to hold on to that, and remember, God dealt with them time and time again. Whenever Ezekiel goes out and he lays on, on the, the ground, on the, the road, for what was it, like 360 days, something like that, on his right side, and the Lord says, and when you're done, go out there and lay 40 more days on your left side. I am going to portray something in that, that I am going to send the Babylonians and they are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to wipe you out. So it's not like the Lord didn't tell them. But see, they held on to it and they held on to the idols in their heart and there is a result of that and I'm just going to show you one result. One result. And this result is for me very, very, very sobering. Very sobering. Ezekiel, turn with me, chapter 9. 
Do you know that in the Bible and in your life, there is progression? In the life of Jesus, there was a progression. You know, he, for example, he was in the carpenter shop, and then they went to Jerusalem, and they, they didn't find him, and he's out, he's teaching. He's in the temple teaching. So he submits, goes back with his parents for another 17 years, whatever it was. Then you see him going into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and then after that you see he begins his earthly ministry. So there was a progression in the life of Jesus. There will be a progression in your life as a Christian if you're going to develop and you're going to, to mature in the Lord, there must be a progression in your life. Now, there can be a good progression toward the Lord, or there can be, if you want to call it an evil progression or a digression, in another way. But see, there are results of things. They clung on to the idols in their heart. And I want to show you what happens. Look in verse 3. Now the glory of God, of the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So the picture was the Ark of the Covenant. We know what the Ark of the Covenant was. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat, and then the angels were there. They had an angel, two angels with their, their wings. So that was the place where the Lord, his presence would come down and would dwell in that spot there. He told Moses, I will meet you there between the cherubim. Uh, and then you see this with Aaron and so forth, with the high priest. So this was the pr place where God dwelt and that's where his presence came. So because of the clinging of the idols of, in the heart of the people, now there is a, a movement, or now there is a shift, where the Spirit of God goes from between the cherub now, and His presence is moving to another position, and that is the threshold of the temple. The threshold. So, so there's something afoot here, as they say. Something's going on. What's going on? He, he's moving. He's moving. Where He was? Now he's going to, going to move somewhere else here. Chapter 10, verse 4. Now look at this, because, you know, the Lord is really, really something. His mercy and his goodness is really something. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold. So I see in this that the Lord, you know, now he's, he's removing, but he's going to, to pause. He's going to wait. Why is he going to pause and wait? In the King James, it says, and he stood over the, the threshold. Why? Because the Lord still looks for a heart that will respond to him. A heart that will say, yes, Lord, I will put my idols aside. I will put these things, Lord, that are before you, that are hindering me uh, in my relationship. I will put them aside. So he removes to the threshold, and he pauses, waiting, waiting waiting for his people, waiting for a response, waiting for someone to say, Lord, don't let your presence leave. Don't, don't leave, Lord. Don't leave. Stay. And so he hovers there. I wonder how long he hovered there. It doesn't say. How long does his presence hover? How long does he just wait? I'll, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. If you'll respond, I'll wait. Please respond. I'll stand over the threshold. I'll come back, my presence. I'll come back. I'll dwell in your midst. So respond. So the Lord's waiting, 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 <laughs> waiting for a response. And, and I, I see this as even with us in our lives many times, the Lord waits for a response. He waits for us. He waits for us. Say, come on, respond. Respond. This is for your good. This is for your good. 
chapter 10, verse 18. So after some time here of him pausing, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their, their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them. Now that goes back to the first vision. And they stood at the door of the east, uh, east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of, of God of Israel was above them. So he's, he's mounting up. He's getting ready to mount up. And when he talks about the wheels, he's talking about the four living creatures. And they're ready to mount up and take his presence away. See, that's what they're, they're ready. And he's, he's waiting still. Now, in chapter 11, we see the final result that comes from the idolatry that's in the heart of the people. This is the final result. In chapter 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain. So there is a departure now of the presence of the Lord. And then you'll have somebody that says, well... I know it says in the New Testament that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, it does say that in Hebrews. And I was looking at that, and I wanted to look at, at where the quote, where's that quote coming from in the Old Testament? And is it quoted anywhere else in the Old Testament? And I found some places. It's a direct quote from, I believe it's Deuteronomy, Related to Joshua, Moses says to Joshua, when you go into the land and you serve the Lord, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So it's talking about Joshua being upright and walking with God. The other time it's used is in Joshua chapter 1, where he tells him to go into the land of Cana, and the Lord speaks to him this time, not through Moses, but this time he speaks to him, he says, I will not leave you nor forsake you when you go into the land. Another place that that phraseology is used <clears throat> is with Jacob at Bethel when he vows a vow to the Lord. So once again, you have a man of God who is walking with God, and the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now I want to show you something. In 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 15. Now pay attention to this verse. 2 Chronicles, are you there yet? 2 Chronicles 15? Okay. Verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah. Now Azariah was a prophet, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa. Asa was the king of um, Judah at the time. So this man of God, the Spirit of God, comes upon him to go out and meet this king. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. Now listen to this. The Lord is with you while you are with him. So if you are with him, the Lord is never going to leave you nor forsake you. But see, if we decide that we are going to move off to the side and go in our own way, in our own will, then the Lord may not be with us. He may not be beside us in the same way. The word with means beside. So I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to walk in my own thing, and I'm going to do what I want in my life, and I'm really don't, not too concerned about the Lord and what He wants. And so oh, I'm a Christian. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me. Well, remember the context for that. The context was that those people were serving and walking with God. So, in a manner of speaking, we walk with Him, and when we walk with Him, He's with us. Now, that's what he's, this prophet's telling him. Let's read it again. The Lord is with you while you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. In other words, if you forsake him, 
He's not going to be with you in whatever it is over here you're in. Now, it doesn't mean you're not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that whatever you're in and you're walking in, the Lord's not going to be with you. He's going to let you over there by yourself, so to speak. Oh, the Lord's not going to leave me nor forsake me. Well, I'll tell you what. There have been people who've gotten into sin. And I know he, you know, if you make your bed in hell, he is there. But see, he may not be there in the way you think. He may not be with you in the way that you think or want. And you may call upon his name, and as he tells his people in the Old Testament, I'm not going to even hear you. So you might have to come over here. You want me to hear you. You want, you want me to be with you. Will you come over here where I am? Well, does Jesus say that anywhere? Oh, yes, he does. He says the same thing. Let's go look in John. I'm going to show you this because I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Stick into the Bible here. Very clear. You want the Lord with you? Well, he'll be with you when you're with him. In John 12, let me add, before we look at this, now you know the setup in the, uh, in the wilderness, right? They were to carry the tabernacle, and then they would, they would pitch, and they'd put the uh, tribes around in, in their different order around the tabernacle. And what was on the tabernacle during the day? The pillar of cloud. What was there at night? Pillar of fire. Now, what determined the position of the tabernacle? See, the tabernacle was to rest when the Lord was there. When the Lord lifted up above the tabernacle in the cloud and he began to move, well, the Lord's never going to leave me for, nor forsake me, so I'm going to stay here where we are. No, they had to get packed up, and they had to follow the cloud, follow the cloud. If you want to be with the Lord, you want him with you in your life, you have to be with him. So if he's moving over here, you have to move with him. Jesus says the same thing here. In John 12, verse 26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. You see that? That where I am, my servant will be. Well, if you want, you want to be with me, well, it's where I am, not where you want to be. And in John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me. Now, we always relate this to heaven. It's, it's all, it's, everybody relates this to heaven. And, of course, it's, it's an application to it, but listen, that they may be with me where I am. Well, where is Jesus? Well, he's in heaven. Well, I know that, but I'm saying, where is Jesus now today for me in my life? He's always in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But see, he sent the Comforter, he sent the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit, it says, will lead you and guide you into all truth. So now, okay, Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. Where are you, Jesus, today in my life? So that where you are, your servant may be also. So it's not about you go do what you want, the Christian wants to go here and do this, do that, whatever. I want to go and be a missionary here, or I want to go and serve at the soup kitchen. I mean, well, other people might benefit from that, but is the Lord there for you? Are you following him like the cloud of the, of, um, the fire or the, the cloud? Are you following him that way? Or are you making the decision? We need to be where he is. So the Lord will be with you if you are with him. In second, or excuse me, First Chronicles. You turn to Joshua twenty-four. I'm going to read two more verses. This is First Chronicles twenty-eight, verse nine. 
Now, this is when David's praying for his son Solomon. As for you, my son Solomon, know that the God of your father, uh, excuse me, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Well, that's pretty good. And serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. See, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord understands, the Lord searches the hearts of man. And then he says, if you seek him, and that's a, a big if there, if you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he's going to cast you off forever. If you seek him, am I as a Christian in my heart seeking the Lord? And I'm not talking about church. We should be seeking the Lord here, yes. But when I leave, I go to work or wherever I am, in my heart, is that seeking him? You know you can do other things and still have a heart that's seeking the Lord. You know that. You can go to work and still have your heart seeking the Lord. You might not even be thinking about it, praying about it, nothing like that. But it's just an internal thing that you have done or you want to do and your heart just goes toward him and you look for him all the time. And in 2 Chronicles, it says this, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath and they swore with, their, with all their hearts and sought him with all their soul and he was found of them or found by them. So if I want to find God, I need to seek him. Now in... In closing, Joshua 24. How many here today want to serve the Lord? I see that one hand back there. How many want to serve the Lord? Do you in your heart really want to serve him? See, because serving him will mean more than what you're thinking. You know that. You may think serving the Lord is one thing, and he will come in his time through a circumstance or whatever, and he will present us a choice. Am I going to serve him, or am I going to allow something else to get in the place in my heart that God wants? You know, that's, that's something I believe. I really believe this. That this happens with Christians more than we realize. More than we think. Something gets there, and they might not even see it. Well, the Lord will reveal it eventually. But see, do I really want to serve God? Am I interested in that? I want to show you... Joshua says something to the people, and it's very good. You want to serve the Lord? Okay, let's, let's read this. Verse 17. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. See, the Lord has brought the Christian up out of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. And the world, they say here, Egypt being, being the house of bondage, the world is the house of bondage. And if you are, like the expression is, if you're going to keep one foot in the world, or if you are going to be like people in the world, you are going to have bondage in your life. You will be bound up, and you're not going to be able to serve the Lord the way he wants you to serve the Lord, the way he wants you to serve him. You're not going to be able to do that because he has not done a complete deliverance from Egypt in your life. See, only the ones that really want to serve God really want him. Can he really break the bondage of Egypt in their life? For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. 
who did those great signs in our sight. Well, that's really great. And preserved us in all the way that we went. Well, that's great. And among all the people through whom we passed. That's fantastic that the Lord did that for them. Do you know that? Do you believe that the Lord can have a deliverance like that for you? Completely cut, just cut the world completely off as far as your life, your heart. Nothing there, no idols, nothing. Verse 18. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelled in the land. And by the way, the Amorites were uh, very warlike. Actually, they, when they said the Amorites many times, they meant included that all the tribes uh, of, of Cana. But they were very warlike people. And do you know um, what Amalek is representative of? Does anybody know what Amalek is representative of in the, in the scriptures? All you Bible school teachers? Bible school students? Amalek is a type of the flesh. We will have to do war with Amalek. <laughs> we will have to war against the flesh and our desires. We will have to. But the Lord will deliver, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We will serve the Lord, for he is our God. That's what the people were saying. Now remember, the only generation that really, as far as the masses, that really served the Lord were the, the ones that came into the, the land with Joshua. So this is, these are the people that are saying that. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Do you say that today? We will serve the Lord. He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. That's funny. I mean, they're saying, oh, we're going to serve the Lord. He says, you can't serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He's sensitive, you see. His heart is sensitive to what your desires are, especially if your desires are not for him. He's sensitive. You take the most sensitive woman that you know. Probably none here. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> Who is the most sensitive woman that you've ever run into? It's a drop of a blade of grass. They're, oh, they're so sensitive. God is more sensitive than that. When it comes to his people, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will, he will turn and he will do, your, do you harm and consume you after he, ha, he has done you good. So it doesn't matter how much good has, God has done in our life. If we turn to idols, any idols, then you know, things aren't going to go well. And we're going to say, what's going on here? How come this is the way it is? How come that's the way it is? And you know, the answer's right here in the Bible, and we miss it. We think this is just for the people back then. It doesn't apply to me. Well, it applies, all right. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. That's very good. They're, they're pressing on. They're saying, yes, we will serve the Lord. So now, this is what Joshua says to them. You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So they were witnessing before everyone and before Joshua that they were going to serve the Lord no matter what. They were not going to serve other gods. They were not going to serve idols. Instead, they were going to serve God and him alone. We are witness. We will serve the Lord. You have witnessed against yourself today. You will serve the Lord. That's what, that was your witness when you 
If you didn't raise your hand, you raised your hand with your heart. Yes, I want to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. You are a witness. You're a witness. Remember, God is a jealous God. And he is sensitive. And he sees your every moment. I believe today that there are some here. Now, there are, there are those here who are serving the Lord with their whole heart. But I believe that there are some here today that are wavering. And they're not as dedicated and committed to God as they should be or as maybe they once were. And there can be something in the heart that is bringing weakness there, you see. And the Lord is saying, I want you to come to him and commit your life, or however you want to say it, rededicate your life to get serious with him in saying, Lord, if there's anything in my heart, I want to take that today and remove that and put that upon the altar and burn that up so that there is no, no, no idol, that there is nothing there in my life that I have placed there or that has been placed there that is before you, that you are my total focus. You are the one in which I want, I desire you. And I'm going to ask you, if, if you want to really commit your life, I believe the Lord is calling you today. Not just, you know, just come up for any reason. So as I said, some of you, I believe, are committed. But those of you, maybe you have contemplated leaving. Leave the church. I've had enough. Things are just too much. The circumstances in my life are too much. And, and you're wavering. Like, it's like it takes every week you come in, you, you barely have enough to get you back. Well, the Lord wants to do something in our lives. And I'm going to open the altars. Could you guys come, please? Play. Now, this is nothing about, you know, I don't want to come because I'm embarrassed. You know, I, I don't want everybody to think that, you know, I'm not committed to the Lord. No, you can come. And it's between you and the Lord. He knows. He sees in the secret place. God sees your heart. And the Lord sees everything that you do every single minute of every single day. I will serve the Lord. You have witnessed against yourself. So now commit yourself and your way to him. That is what he's saying to you today. Commit yourself to him. Totally.